Well, a little preface before we pray and give the introduction. Um, I'm a great admirer of the English pastor from the 1800s named Charles Spurgeon. I may have mentioned that once or twice, uh, or 20 or 30 times. Um, he's done my soul great good, and, and uh, I very much uh, thank God for the gift of him. He, he being dead yet speaketh. He had a very different approach to preaching than I have and than you're accustomed to. Uh, on Saturdays, he would pray for God to give him the verse that he should preach the next day. And he would compose his sermon on Saturday. Now, I always caution people, this is Charles Spurgeon, do not attempt. You must be at least Charles Spurgeon to do it that way. Us lesser mortals are forced to give a whole lot more time to it. But in addition to that, and because of that, uh, as far as I know, he never preached through books. In fact, I think he looked down on that kind of preaching as being probably dry and, and boring and rote to go verse by verse by verse like a commentary. So he never did it, and I don't think he ever uh, preached a, a, a series on a, a topic either. He would simply preach the verse that he felt burdened and moved to preach each week, and so that would have him various places. Well, I say all that to say this. This section we're looking at verses 25 through 30, obviously very much spoke to him because he preached at least 12 sermons on verses drawn from this section. In fact, he preached five sermons on verse 28 alone, five different sermons, not five times the same sermon, but five different sermons on verse 28 alone and an additional four on verses including verse 28. So verse 28 figured in at least nine of those sermons. So, you'll understand, I'm going to spend some time here, probably not 12 sermons, but I have in mind that this week we will go over all of it, and this may be kind of a drinking from a fire hose experience uh, for you, but then we'll go back and probably spend at least three more sermons going over it a bit more slowly and uh, uh, making sure we understand what Jesus is saying because it's very important. Let us pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, this portion of your words presents us with truths that are so dear, so encouraging, so sobering, and at the same time so challenging. We call you Lord, so help us to listen to you as slaves, not peers, not debate partners. Help us to remember that we know nothing rightly unless it be revealed to us by you and taught us by you. Oh, help us not to be wise in our own eyes, pre-deciding what you may and may not say about the ways of your Father. Help us to humble ourselves and learn from you as little children should, ready, if need be, to slay even our dearest, most beloved falsehood so as to be true to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll remember that in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus launched a, a mission. He told his 12 apostles what he wanted them to do. He gave them the power to do it. He sent them out to preach to Jewish cities, to seek for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so they went out and they did these cities. And how did that turn out? Well, Matthew 11 tells us how that turned out. Matthew tells us two stark, shocking truths about this uh, ministry, this mission to these cities. First, he tells us that Jesus did the most of his acts of power in these cities, powerful acts that no one had ever done before, showing his mastery in nature, in the supernatural realm, in the spiritual realm, uh, through the kinds of miracles we've been reading in the Gospel of Matthew. He did most of his miracles there, but secondly, they did not repent. These cities that heard the words of God and saw the works of the kingdom of God did not repent. Now, what would we call a mission like that? A mission with that result? There's no doubt we'd call it a failure. We'd say it was a failed mission. We did not achieve what we set out to accomplish. And what would we do in that case? Well, we'd regroup, surely. We'd, we'd rethink We'd re-strategize. We'd ask ourselves, what did we do wrong? What should we do different? What different approach should we take 
to meet them? What are, how are we not speaking to their needs? Maybe we need to uh, alter our approach. Maybe we need to massage the message and come up with something that's likelier to connect with them, likelier to get the result that we're going for. But underlying this strategizing and this discussion would be the absolute confidence that we can achieve these results if we just do it right. It's in our power to affect the changes and the responses that we want. If we don't get them, we must have done something wrong. So do something different. I mean, that's human nature. That's American nature. If you work hard enough and smart enough, you can achieve it. We're told that from the, from the cradle up. So this is the way we'd approach ministry here, is it not? But how did Jesus approach it? What did he make of it? How did he respond to this? And for you just listening to the tape, I'm making air quotes. Ooh, I said tape. How old am I? The recording, uh, I'm making air quotes. How did Jesus respond to this failure, this failed mission? Well, the answer to these questions will perhaps teach us more than we are willing to learn. But as slaves of Christ, we must listen. We must learn. So, the first, now it will not surprise you to learn that this section breaks down in three. Uh, I remind you that chapters 11 and 12 are three cycles, and that each of those three cycles have three sub-cycles. What we're looking at in Matthew 11, 25 through 30, is the third cycle, the, the third sub-cycle of the first cycle, and as I say, it shouldn't surprise you if you've been here long, to find that this breaks down into three parts as well. As Jesus speaks to his Father, he speaks to the universe, he speaks to those who are laboring and loaded down. First then, Roman numeral one, Jesus turns to his Father and speaks to him in adoration. That's the word that goes in that blank. He speaks to his Father in adoration. Verses 25 and 26. At that point, Jesus, in response, said, I openly acknowledge you, Father, Lord of heaven and of earth, that you hid these things from the wise and comprehending, and you revealed them to infants. Yes, indeed, Father, because in this way, what was a delight before you came to be. So, Jesus speaking to his Father in adoration. This is Jesus' response to the failure of these cities to repent. That's the meaning of these words, which some English versions mistakenly neglect even to translate, thinking it's an an empty phrase. Matthew's never used this as an empty phrase. But it's puzzling because nobody said anything for Jesus to answer. But it isn't. Matthew makes a big point, does he not, that it's at this time that Jesus responds and says this. So what is he responding to? The fact that the cities did not repent. These cities he denounced. He's responding to that entire situation. This is how Jesus responds to, quote-unquote, a failure in mission. And what Jesus calls God frames what he's going to say, and we must learn it. We must listen to what he says. First, he says, I openly acknowledge you, Father. Now, that word openly acknowledge is a word that can mean, it's it's difficult to translate with one English word or phrase. Uh, It's used in chapter 3 of of the sinners openly confessing their sins uh, at their baptism. And this is an open confession of who God is. So it's a glad confession. It's a thankful confession. It's a praising confession. All of those are, are permissible translations. But he's acknowledging his Father before all, openly, gladly, without apology. I openly acknowledge you, Father. Well, to Jesus he is Father. They have a unique relationship of father and son. God has no son like Jesus. He has sons who are created, who are adopted, but he only has one eternal son. Son by eternal filiation. uh, Begotten before the ages. No beginning, no end. Equally God, son to the father. He calls him father. And then he calls him Lord of heaven and of earth. To him he is father. To the universe he is Lord. Now, these are not empty phrases. This is not Jesus just saying, well, I better say something before I get to what I want to talk about. It's to an effect that he calls him Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus goes back to first principles to understand this correctly. And the first principle is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And no one who 
really understands that verse will then not see God's absolute sovereignty as Jesus does. He acknowledges his absolute sovereignty because he's Lord of heaven and earth. And, and we need to understand that this expression, heaven and earth, it means everything. It's like saying everything from north to south. Well, that includes everything in between. Heaven and earth includes everything. So Jesus is saying, I openly acknowledge you, Father, Lord of everything, ruler of everything, master of everything. Uh, and then he says that you have hid these things from the wise and comprehending. Let's talk about who they are first. Who are the wise and comprehending? Well, those sound like fine qualities, don't they? Don't you want to be wise and comprehending? Ah, but Jesus is, you don't want to be this kind of wise and comprehending. Jesus is speaking this ironically or even sarcastically. They certainly are not wise and comprehending in God's eyes. So whose eyes are they wise and comprehending in? Their own eyes. And that's the problem. <clears throat> They're so wise and understanding, comprehending, that they can't see the most basic truths of the universe. That's how smart they are in their own eyes. That is a fatal, conceited, proud sense of self-wisdom. And think this too, what is that attitude the opposite of? The attitude that I've got it all together. I can figure everything out. I can work everything out. I've got the power. I'm smart enough. I'm good enough. I, can, I got this. What's that the opposite of? Repentance. It's the opposite of humility. That's true. But that sort of person will never repent, right? Because what is repentance? Repentance is saying, you got me. I'm guilty, I'm ruined, I'm lost. I'm coming out with my hands up and my pockets empty, yielding to you. That's repentance. And wise and comprehending? They're a universe away from repentance. And I want to stress to you that this is not a, a don't think of this as a subset of lost people. This is lost people. This is, the, this is our default setting. This is where it all started. Where did it all start? With the promise that if you eat this fruit, what? eyes will be opened and you'll understand good and evil which means everything you'll have you'll be wise and comprehending if you just do this that's our default setting this is the way everybody is apart from saving grace so uh, the wise and the comprehending are wise and comprehending in their own eyes often warned against in the book of proverbs and elsewhere and god is far from them god resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, we read often. What about this hiding then? Well, they're not simply unable to see. God actively hides these things from them. You say, that doesn't fit my system. You need to change your system. Because this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, and not only says it, but he thanks God for it. He praises him for it. He acknowledges that God the Lord actively hides these things from uh, the lost, from the proud, from the the uh, self-satisfied. And what does he mean then when he says these things? What are the these things? Now that's very instructive and interesting to us. What, what are the things that we just talked about? His works of power. So what does he mean when he says you hid these things from him? Does he mean that whenever he'd do a miracle, he'd kind of lift his cloak up and do it so that the unbelievers couldn't see it? Or he'd find some place where there weren't any reprobates and he'd do it so they couldn't see it? Oh no, these things were out and open. They were done daytime, nighttime, indoors, outdoors, on the sea, on the land. They're done everywhere. Everybody could see them. So what, is he, <clears throat> what does he mean when he says you hid these things? He means you hid the meaning, the transforming impact the power of these things. It's the same thing that Paul says, that the unregenerate man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because he's not able. They're spiritually discerned. They're not a matter of intellectual power. It's a spiritual issue. It's not a matter of lack of evidence, obviously, because he'd done most his powerful works in these cities, but they did not see what they meant. Well, you know that, right? What, what do the leaders do? Do the leaders ever say uh, as their main response, well, he didn't really do any miracles. They didn't go that way, did they? They said um, he did them by Satan. That was their brilliant idea, but they couldn't deny them. So he didn't hide the fact of these things, but he hid from them the meaning of these things. That's his hiding. So now the, 
the thing we have to notice is that Jesus teaches God's ultimate sovereignty over all responses, those who repent and those who don't repent. In both cases, God has the first word and the last word. And, and if we don't like that, then we don't like what Jesus teaches. This is exactly what he's saying here. He equally praises God for both. And if we want to see how God does this sort of thing, Romans 1, 18 to 32 would be a good study. The way God punishes sin with sin. But here's the thing we need to understand and remember. Never forget, a lot of people approach this from the wrong premise, as if mankind is neutral. And all of us mean well, and we're basically good-hearted, a little messed up, could use a little help maybe, but basically we're okay. We just need to, you know, we got the... We got the devil on one shoulder, we got our angel on the other shoulder, we just need to listen to the angel more than the devil. That's not the way the Bible paints us, our race. The Bible paints our race as, hmm, what do I see? Dead. What's worse than dead? Can't think of anything. Dead, blind, hating God, unable to submit to his law, unable to receive the things of the Spirit of God, seeing them as folly, and on and on and on. And so this is the starting point. So God doesn't do these things to innocent people. Uh, Sheer justice and justice alone would call on God to do nothing but harden, damn, and punish them. That he would do other to anyone is infinite grace. It's the most amazing act of grace. And that's where Jesus takes us next. There is that, oh, I didn't fill that in. Deflating obscuration is what we've been looking at. Deflating obscuration. O-B-S-C-U-R. And what is obscuration? It means hiding. And how is it deflating? It's deflating because these people imagine themselves to be the chef's kiss, the cream of the crop, just the smartest top men. And the fact is they don't know the basics. They're blind and blinded to the basics. So that is the deflating obscuration. And then secondly, in letter B, we see gracious revelation. You hid these things from the wise and comprehending, and you revealed them to infants. So in the case of the blindness of the lost, it's not their lack of intellectual power. And in the case of the sight of the infants, it's not because of their possession of intellectual power. It's nothing in them God reveals it to them. God reveals it to infants. Now notice this is God's initiative. God does this and it results in a a relationship. Everyone to whom he does this, he saves. Because they are infants, which is to say they're regenerate, which is to say they repent. They know him. They're marked by their being infants. What does it mean to be an infant? It means to be helpless and trusting to be teachable and leadable. And what is infancy but a mark of somebody who's beginning over? And and how does that happen? Well, we do that to ourselves, right? We We decide to be infants. Yeah, just as surely as you decide to be born in the first place. No, in other words. What does Jesus say in John 3? In John 3, he says, you must be born again. And what does he say further? Unless a man is born again, he won't even, what? See the kingdom of God much less enter it. Isn't that just the same thing as here? It's there, but he, he can't see it. Why? Because he's not regenerate. So how do you do that? Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Perhaps hoping for Jesus to give him a step-by-step process on how he can get himself born again. And what does Jesus say? The wind blows where it will, and that's the way of those born of the Spirit. In other words, it is a sovereign act of the Spirit of God, giving new life, giving new birth, making a child out of a wise and self-sufficient sinner so that that child can submit to God's word and be teachable and leadable and not just self-taught and self-led. So God reveals these truths to infants. So who gets all the glory? These are not scholars. These are not brilliant people who invented or reasoned their way to these things. God unveiled it to them. So who gets the glory for that? The infants or God? Oh, I heard the right answer over here. God, that's correct. Any system of salvation that does not end up with all of the glory going to God is not Jesus' system. It's not the biblical system. They're infants. God reveals it. Now, the word revelation is used in two senses in the Bible. It it, it means unveiling, but it may be an unveiling of truth that is new, 
And that's what prophets received, revelation. Or it may be unveiling not the truth, but the knower, taking a cover off of the eyes of somebody who's not seeing something so that he can now appreciate the truth of what he's seeing. We saw that in Ephesians, Paul praying that for the Ephesians, that the spirit, they'd have a, a spiritual revelation so as to appreciate what they'd already been taught, but they'd see the full meaning and impact of it. And so Jesus speaks of it here. These facts, they were out in front of everybody. They were, they were public. Like the apostles would later say, that this wasn't done in a corner. It's public knowledge. But the meaning of it requires a work of God, a sovereign work of God, for which Jesus doesn't thank the babies for their good sense or for their wise use of their will or for their being better than their others. He credits God for unveiling their eyes so that they could see what all these smart, comprehending people did not see. And so all the praise and the glory goes to God for their seeing these things, and none to themselves. So we've seen the deflating obscuration, we've seen the gracious revelation, both by God. God, God <clears throat> pardon me, um, hides these things, and God reveals these things. And so then we see in verse 26, Jesus is glad exaltation. He says, yes, indeed, Father, because in this way, what was a delight before you came to be. Once again, our Lord Jesus, our teacher, our master, our God, traces all of this to the will of God and not ultimately to the will of man. Jesus does not say, you hid these things from the wise, you reveal them to babes, and isn't that a terrible shame? Isn't that an awful shame? But, you know, that's what they chose, so that's what we've got to go with. That's what we're stuck with. We didn't want this to happen, Father, but that was their choice, so we've just got to go along with what they decide. Is that what Jesus says? You're not sure? Should I read it again? Yes, indeed, Father, because in this way, what was the delight before you came to be? Does that sound like he's saying, well, it's a, it's a, it's a shame they chose this way, but we've just got to go along with what they decide? No, it's the, it's the will of his Father. It's the action of his Father. He traces everything ultimately to God. What does Scripture say about God? He calls him the Alpha and the... What's Omega? It's, it's the last word in the Greek, uh, the last, last letter in the Greek alphabet. It doesn't call him the Alpha and the Psi. That's the next to last letter. He's not, he's not the A and the Y. He's the A and the Z. What does Scripture say about God? It calls him the beginning and the... It doesn't call him the beginning and the next to the end, but really it's us who are the end. It's really us who make the final decision. No, no. The, the, the first word is God's and the last word is God's because that's what it is to be God. That is how Jesus sees God. That's how he teaches us to see God. This is essential to who the real God is, the real undomesticated, untamable God, God of Scripture. If we don't believe this, then we don't believe the, the portrait of God that Jesus paints. It's of great theological import. If you've got some power that can thwart God and, and defeat him so that he doesn't achieve what he wants to achieve and decided to achieve, decreed to achieve and meant to achieve, well then that's God. Not God. Because it is ultimate. Not him. This is not just a theological truth. It's a very practical impact. R.C. Sproul says very well. <clears throat> the late R.C. Sproul. He says, if God is not sovereign, God is not God. If there is even one maverick molecule in the universe, one molecule running loose outside the scope of God's sovereign ordination." we cannot have the slightest confidence that any promise God has ever made about the future will come to pass. He's absolutely right. Jesus, God, is ultimate. And if something else has the last word and not God, well, that's what we ought to be worshiping and not God. But as Paul says, Paul would say, God forbid. And as Paul would also say, I speak as a fool. God is God. And so Jesus exalts in God's sovereignty. To him, it was not... 
It was not a doctrine, obviously, to be embarrassed about or to tone down or to try to explain, you know, any more than Paul did. It's something that he exalted and he was glad of it. And as we follow him, we should be as well. And if we find that we aren't, then we know an area where we need to mortify ourselves, repent and change and learn. So first, Jesus turns to his father and speaks to him in adoration. Secondly, Jesus turns to the universe, really. He doesn't name who he's talking to. He just speaks to to creation with a declaration in verse 27. A declaration in verse 27. He says, all things were delivered over to me by my father. And no one truly knows the son except the father. Nor does one truly know the father except the son. And anyone to whom the son decides to reveal him. First then we're confronted with the father's donation. His gift. Verse 27a. All things were delivered over to me by my father. Jesus is the pivot of God's plan for the universe. God the Father originated the plan and Jesus executes the plan. And it all depends on him. It all depends on him coming and doing the work for which God sent him into the world. All hinges on him. And the Father made it that way. That's the will of God. Remember in Ephesians 1, it's God's will to head up all things under the sun. Uh, Colossians 1, that Jesus might come to have first place in all things. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He's the culmination of the law, as Paul says. And Jesus is the pivot of God's will. And so God hands all things over to Jesus in terms of this mighty work of redemption. He's given him a work to complete. And uh, by God's glory... He does complete that work. He completes, he achieves, he succeeds in doing what God sent him to do. So even in this apparent rejection by men, the son is not the victim. He's not put upon and defeated. He doesn't go back and lick his wounds saying, boy, that did not turn out like I wanted it to. What a terrible botch up. What what am I going to do to fix this? No. He goes to his father, confesses him as Lord of heaven and earth, thanks him equally for hiding and for revealing. And then says, the Father's delivered all things into my hand. So this is one of those things where, you know, if you were to go into a church and be there for any much time and not hear much about Jesus, you know, that should start at least a yellow light flashing in the back of your mind because everything relates to Jesus. And Jesus is the center of everything. He's the center of our lives. He's the center of our worship. All things were delivered over to him. This is, this is the Father's um, plan. Jesus is not an extra. He's not a helper. He's not a wonderful accessory. He's the center. He's the head. He's the Lord. The Father made him that, gave that to him. And so in this apparent rejection, did Jesus fail? No, the people who didn't repent failed. They're the ones who failed. They're the ones who did not do what they desperately needed to do. Jesus, did he fail? Never. The Father has delivered all things over into his hands. And see how in this, you know, the people who say things like, well, Jesus never said he was God. <laughs> Some statements are just so stupid it's difficult to pick a response. But you say, okay, well, no, that's true. He never said the words, I am God. He just said before Abraham was, I am. He just said, all things are delivered over to me by the Father. He just said, nobody knows the Father except me and the one I choose to reveal him to. He just said, and you can just go on and on and on. Who is the person who has all those powers, who has that place? Why, that's God. What does he do here? Does he, is it possible you could say this of a simple rabbi or a sage or a teacher that, that, to, to say, All things have been delivered over to me by my Father? Who can say that? Only an absolute lunatic or a liar or somebody of whom it's true. My pick is that's Jesus. He's saying this because it's true. And he takes apart apart from all the rest of humanity while still being human, but he stands alone in that he is the only human into whose hands God gave all things. Because he's not only human. He is entirely human and he's entirely God. So, he says, God has given all these things to my hand. And uh, 
Then he speaks words of exclusion, letter B, words of exclusion, letter B, where he says, and nobody knows, no one truly knows the Son except the Father. That's a remarkable statement. That would just be insane, burbling nonsense if Jesus were just a rabbi or just a sage or just a teacher like people try to say. It would make absolutely no sense for him to say, no, if he's just a guy, then anyone can know him. <laughs> anyone can know him. But he says, nobody plunges into the depths of my nature. No one's able to, except the Father. No one, he uses a word, the, 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 verb, uh, the verb ginosko means to know. And in Greek, like in English, if you want to intensify a verb, you might add a preposition. Like we say someone is aware of something, or we might say he's hyper aware of something, you know, meaning he's really, really aware. And so this word ginosko, to know, Jesus intensifies it by adding a preposition, epigenosko. So he's saying no one really knows, no one knows the whole story, no one fully knows the son except the father. That's what a remarkable statement he says about himself. Uh, this is why the creature's blind unbelief doesn't see him for who he really is, because only the Father knows him fully. Uh, and, and it's true of his divine nature. As John says, you might just jot this down, but we won't turn there. John 1.18, the first part of John 1.18, says uh, very literally, God no one has seen ever. So no one has looked on the essence of God ever. And that is akin to what Jesus is saying here. No one knows my essence, my divine essence, except the Father. But then look next at Revelation in the third part of verse 27. He says, no one knows me except the Father, nor does anyone truly know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son decides to reveal him. So only he, no one has seen God, John says, but Jesus has. Jesus looks on the essence of the Father. Why? Because Jesus is God. Jesus sees God as equally God because Jesus is God the Son. And so John 1.18 goes on to say, started out by saying, God no one has seen ever. And then it says, the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. So Jesus who knows God infinitely and is Himself also man, communicates God to us. He is our mediator, fully God, fully man, able to, he can speak human. You know, like maybe you can speak Spanish or Russian. Jesus can speak human. And he speaks human about God because he also speaks God. Because he is divine. So uh, notice too, though, once again, the initiative is Jesus's. What does he say? And Anyone to whom the Son decides to reveal him. And if he decides to reveal him, then that person will be saved. This is, this is the logic of this passage, obviously. The lost and the saved. If they're lost, God harden, uh, hides these things. If they're saved, it's because God reveals these things to them. And what determines that? My will. What, what does Jesus say again? And whoever wills to know the Son? Well, my will gets involved, but whose will is first? Which will is the causative will? Which will is ultimate? He says, anyone to whom the Son decides to reveal him. Interesting word I translate decides. It's only used one other time in Matthew's gospel. That's in Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse um, 19. Remember, Joseph is just torn apart by what to do about Mary because she's pregnant and he knows it's not by him. And he just can't believe that she would be faithless, but I mean, there she is, pregnant. He knows how that happens. So, so what's he going to do with her? And he finally comes to a decision. That's this verb. Verse 19, chapter 1. They came to a decision quietly to divorce her rather than expose her to shame and, and ridicule. That's the decision he reaches. And so Jesus says, this is determined by the decision I make. If I decide to reveal, well then, then they know who the Father is by his revelation. So the cause ultimately is the will of Jesus. First then we've seen adoration and then we see uh, declaration to the universe in verse 27. Finally, we see an invitation in verses 28 through 30. We're having 
having laid down the absolute sovereignty of God in election, predestination, hardening, revelation, he still he puts out an, an invitation. He still invites. He calls out and he says, Come here to me, all who are laboring and have been loaded down, and I myself will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is well designed, and my load is light. So first the invitation to rest in verse 28. Come here to me, all who are laboring and have been loaded down, and I myself will give you rest. What is the condition of this rest? Come here, he says. Kind of an an adverb that's used as a verb. Over here, come here. Come here to me. Now, there are three imperatives. It's another Matthew 3 or Jesus 3. But there's three commands, three imperatives. And the first one is here. Come here, he says. Where do you come? Do you come just to a, 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 a religious institution? To learn things? Do you you go to the field to meditate on nature? Do you go to your bedroom to think about yourself? No, Jesus says, come here. Come to me. Come here to me. Come to Jesus. And and who does he bid to come? All those who labor and are heavy laden. Now, I, I expect we'll look at that more closely when we have more time. But don't you kind of want to say, well, who isn't laboring and heavy laden? Well, true, that's absolutely true. Everybody is. But the ones who are laboring and heavy laden and are wise and comprehending, they think they got this. This is just, have you, have you learned this? This is just an axiom of human nature. Everybody does what he does because he thinks it's going to work. Everybody. If you see a, some poor wrecked human being in a gutter, drunk out of his mind and homeless, he thinks he can work that system. Just one more better bottle or a better gift or a better this. He, he thinks that he's on the right track. Everybody thinks he's on the right track. And apart from the grace of God, that's all of us. So yeah, everybody's, it's hard work trying to be God when you aren't, you know? I mean, it is. You've got to pretend you know everything. You've got to pretend that you can handle everything. You've got to pretend that you're sufficient, and you're not. None of those things is true. But you've got to do that 24-7, 365. Keep that illusion up. Keep that, keep that facade up. That's hard work. But the, pro- the proud, the wise, the comprehending, oh, they're sure they can make it work. Just one more score, one more achievement, one more attempt, and they can make it work. Uh, so he's obviously talking to people who feel the burden and the weariness, people who God is revealing himself to, people in whose hearts he's working to prepare them. And th- this is the sign of somebody who, in whose heart the Spirit of God has worked. We're all guilty. We're all doomed. But the person in whose heart the Spirit of God is working begins to feel his guilt and fear his, fear his doom and try to do something about it and see, no, everything I'm doing is failing. I remember this keenly when the Spirit of God was convicting me. How all the, This thing I thought I was sure I was going to be able to make work, I came to see nothing was working. Nothing was working. And I, I was guilty and wretched and what I was sure was going to do it for me, uh, obviously was not doing it for me. And this is part of how God humbled me in bringing me to himself. And this is what God does. Makes a person feel his weariness and his burden. So you feel that? Jesus says, you come here to me. Come here to me with your weariness and your burden. And what's the promise? He says, and I myself will give you rest. It's, just, it's a verb. I'll rest you. I'll refresh you. There's no uh, independent word forgive. He just says, I will rest you. I will refresh you. Uh, direct from Jesus. And notice, this is, this is not an achievement. This is not a reward, right? What is this? It's just a gift. You come to Jesus, Jesus will do this. Jesus will rest you. He will refresh you. He will give you life and hope and joy. He'll give you a new life. I will rest you. I will give you rest. There's the invitation to rest. And what are the means of this rest? Verse 29. Take up my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Ah, Twice, that must be a big thing. Twice he says rest. So first, the second imperative, take up in verse 29a. Take up my yoke upon you, he says. The second of the three imperatives, the three commands. What is a yoke? What, what wears a yoke? Well, an animal. An animal wears a yoke. Doing what? 
plowing or doing something. Something in what? In service of a farmer. The farmer is using him. The farmer is guiding him. He's working, as it were, in the employ of the farmer. Uh, It's also used metaphorically of of human slavery, taking on the yoke of slavery. It's used to symbolize somebody who is a slave. He's, He's owned by somebody else. So what is Jesus saying when he says, take my yoke upon you? Put yourself in my service. Take me as your, what's the name of the person who owns a slave? What's that title? Lord or master. Lord. Make me your Lord. Take me as your master. So you see, I, I talked to you a while back about the famous preacher who's, who made a big thing saying, I forget the, the time, but he said, try Jesus for 40 days or something like that. So no, no, no. This is not that. <laughs> That's not, he doesn't say take my yoke upon you for 40 days. <laughs> if I take his yoke upon, upon me, I'm his. He owns me, right? This is just one of the dozen or two ways the Bible expresses conversion. It's denying yourself. It's picking up your cross. It's being born again. It's taking up his yoke. Putting yourself under his slavery as your Lord. This is one of the things that made them want to do the LSB to use the word slave in the New Testament because that's what it means. We don't like that word, but we are Jesus' slaves and it's an important truth. Take my yoke upon you. That's the intensity of the commitment Jesus calls us to. No passing thing. And um, I'll spend more time on this in the future, but I do want to say this now. I'm, I'm just more and more troubled. I think that there are so many Texans who believe in Jesus, but they don't believe Jesus. Do you know what I mean by that? That if you ask them, if you quiz them on who Jesus is, they'd answer right. Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, no. Yes. Jesus died for, for our sins. Yes, no. Yes. Jesus rose from the grave. Yes, no. Yes. You repent and believe in Jesus as your Savior? You want to go to heaven? Yes. So, congratulations. You got eternal life. Guaranteed. Just like that. Oh, by the way, um, have you stopped sleeping around? Stop. Mind your own business. Oh, have you got yourself involved in a church yet? Pfft, where I go is my affair, not yours. I don't need to go to a church to worship. I can worship wherever I want. Oh, do you read the Bible much? I, I already know. I don't need to read. Oh, so where's the yoke? Where's the yoke in that? There's no yoke in that. So the person doesn't believe anything Jesus says because Jesus says all those things. But he does believe a few things about Jesus and he imagines he's going to heaven. He's not. There's no yoke on his shoulders and there's no relationship with Jesus. Can I? Amen. So second, take up. And third, learn. Now there's no verse 30. That's a mistake. Cross that out. Just verse 29b. Learn my mistake. Learn. And learn from me, he says, because... I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Well, what must we do? We've got to learn. That means to be disciples. That means to be people who come to Jesus, not to debate ideas with him and see if we disagree, but to say to him, let's just say that I don't know anything. You teach me. Because I don't know anything. So te- and what I thought I knew turns out to be wrong. So you teach me. That's what we come to do. We come to learn from him. Not from somebody who told 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 somebody what Jesus said, but learn from Jesus. So learn from me, he says. And uh, why? He says, because I am gentle and humble in heart. Kind of a, okay. <laughs> All right. So the fellow who says he's gentle and humble in heart just said what? He just said the Father put everything in his hands and that he determines who to reveal the Father to. But I'm gentle and humble in heart. Okay, maybe that doesn't mean what we think it means, <laughs> right? But, because what does humble mean for us? So, uh, we think of humble as meaning self-effacing. I put my, oh, you know, I'm not that good at that. You know, really, you're much better at that. Is that Jesus? Well, that's clearly not Jesus. Now, I would remind you, first of all, that in that world, humility was, was not a virtue. It was not seen as a virtue. It was seen as, well, humiliating. It was, it was seen as degrading. The, the, a really low person is a humble person. It's not, not an admired trait. But what does he mean when he says, learn from me for I am, how does he say it? 
because I am gentle and humble in heart. Well, he's saying, this is why you can learn from me. Because though I am Lord of all, though I am God the Son, though the Father has put all things in my hand, I will speak your language. I will teach you in ways you understand. Philippians 2 describes it, right? Have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be clung to or grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, and humbled himself, Paul says. The fact that he's there is him being humble. The fact that he's explaining things to these infants who he's saving is that he's gentle, not devouring them with divine glory and and divine fire, but instead teaching them, bearing with them, putting up with their needing to hear the same thing over and over and over and over, and he's there with them. He's there with them. Why? Because he's gentle and humble in heart. Have you ever thanked Jesus that he is so long-suffering? Have you ever thanked Jesus that he is so patient? I tell you, uh, with God as my witness, the older I get, the more I thank him for that. (laughs) The more conscious I am that that I owe everything to the patience and long-suffering and graciousness of God. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And so you will find rest for your souls. Uh, That rest, we'll talk about that more, Lord willing, in the weeks to come, but uh, that, that rest is true on so many levels. The most obvious thought is that they're laboring and they're worn out and they're burdened because they're laboring under the false teaching of the religious leaders. All those laws they pile on top of the law. And that's true. That is true. But as I said just a moment ago, simply being an unbeliever is, is exhausting. But pride drives us on. But it's exhausting. It, it, it's, it, it destroys people. It destroys us. It's not the way we were meant to live. And so to come to Jesus is to really come to rest because you stop your war with God. You stop trying to be God. That's an enormous load off your shoulders, my shoulders. You stop fighting the creator of the universe and sustainer of the universe. That's a tremendous relief. And uh, John Frame, the theologian, uses this phrase cognitive rest, which is to say, just in your thinking now, the little ball that's been rolling around all your life finally finds the right hole to chunk down into. And that is the fear of the Lord. Now I know how to know. I know as one who fears the Lord, who submits to his wisdom. That was my greatest feeling the day I was saved, just a feeling of relief. I just felt like finally I I walked in the right door. Do you know what I mean? Finally sat down in the right chair. I'm finally in the place where I need to be. And 45 some odd years later, I still feel that same way. This is, this is, God is where our souls belong. And he gives us rest when we come to him on his terms. Take his yoke on us. Finally, the reason for rest, letter C, the reason for rest. Verse 30 says, for my yoke is well designed and my load is light. Well, you know, every translation translates that word differently. My, my yoke is, is uh, gentle, or it's kind, or it's good. Good would be a good translation, except that, uh, and I just kind of illustrated my point by saying it's a good translation. We use the word for so many different things, you know. We say good as opposed to evil, but we also say good in the sense of useful and well-made. I mean, like, I, I, I know nothing about car engines, and I say to somebody, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remove the disgronificator, you know, What's a good tool for that? Oh, well, here this flange kabibble. That's a good tool for that. Meaning what? Well, it was built for that. It was, it was made to do that. You, you won't have to make it work. It, it's what it's for. And so that's the sense in which Jesus is using that, this, that the yokes, his yokes were designed for us. They're designed for our necks. They're designed for our shoulders. Like, like Augustine says, the heart of man is restless until it comes to rest in God. We, we take every other yoke on our shoulders. The yoke of the world, the flesh, the devil, the yoke of our lusts. And we put Jesus' yoke on. Ah, that's what we were created for. That's what we're made for. And that's what he's saying. The yoke was made for you. You're made for the yoke. It's well designed. It'll be a marriage. 
It won't chafe you. It won't, it, it, he's not saying it's, it's easy in the sense of effortless, but he's saying it's made for you. And then he says, my load is light. Why, why is it light? Well, because we're born again and we have his spirit in our hearts and he helps us. He helps us with that load. It's not man's load, man's merciless load, but the wise, merciful load of God. So, there's the quick tour. Was Jesus' mission a failure? Well, for the men who didn't repent, yes, they failed miserably, ruinously. But Jesus, no, absolutely he did not fail. He completed the mission that God sent him to. What was the mission? The mission was to preach the word of God, show the powers of the kingdom of God. Mission accomplished. This is what he was sent to do. And beyond that, God hides the truth from the wise and comprehending, and he reveals it to babes, and Jesus reveals his father to those he decides to reveal his father to. This is what Jesus says. It's all in God's hands. It's all in Jesus' hands. So what do we do with this frustrating God who can't be frustrated? The natural result is to find some way around him, find some explanation, something that will whittle God down to a more comfortable size, that will domesticate and tame God so we can handle him better. But I tell you what, you get a Bible teacher who can explain everything about God to you, to where you can understand and be more comfortable with God and not find him at all intimidating, you have found a false teacher. Because God is big. He's, how big is he? Um, as big as the Bible says. And that's, that's big. As big as Jesus says. And that's big. So, come to Jesus and you will find rest. No other place will give the rest that Jesus gives. Let us uh, just take a moment now uh, to reflect, jot down thoughts, what you want to do, finish taking a note, and then I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this massive download of truth that we have in Jesus' words. We thank you for the way he unveils you, your power, your wisdom, your sovereignty. We thank you that in him you reach out to the lost. We thank you that that invitation goes out to anyone who will respond to it and that anyone may respond to it and all should. And we thank you, we who found Jesus to be the one who alone gives us rest, we thank you for drawing us to him and give you absolutely every speck of glory for saving us. Now as we have a time to uh, enjoy together the testimony of two whose hearts you've touched, whose lives you've saved, and we pray that you continue to bless us by glorifying Jesus to us and among us. In Jesus' name, amen.